Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At 10 p.m. on September 3, 2008, 46-year-old Dwayne Dunn returned to his Elkhart, Indiana apartment. He joined his girlfriend, Letha Sims, and their next-door neighbor, 60-year-old Angel Torres, who were having a few beers. The men's friendly conversation eventually turned into an argument, and Angel pulled out a bat. It should have ended when Dwayne and Letha left Angel's apartment, but a few minutes later, Dwayne and Angel found each other again on their shared second-story deck, abutted by a rickety set of stairs. Angel began swinging the bat at Dwayne, who was overheard telling Angel to stop, just before a series of audible thumps and thuds, the sounds of Angel falling down the stairs. Police soon arrived to find Dwayne hovering over Angel as blood began to pool. He was rushed to the hospital, where he succumbed to his injuries a few days later. For two years, Dwayne swore in police statements and again at trial that he had neither pushed Angel Torres nor beaten him at the bottom of those stairs. Yet the state's expert witnesses disagreed, which appeared to be ironclad proof of Dwayne Dunn's guilt. But this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today we're going to go back to Elkhart County, Indiana, a place once known as the RV capital of the world. But after what we've seen going on there, it could arguably be called the per capita wrongful conviction capital of the world. We're going to link some of the Elkhart cases we've covered so far in the episode bio. Not surprisingly, many of the same bad actors and troubling patterns are present once again in the case of Dwayne Dunn. And Dwayne, welcome to the show. Thank you. You know, you got caught up in the Elkhart system, convicted for a murder that never happened, right? People always, like, roll their eyes. They're like, what do you mean the crime never happened? It never happened. A man named Angel Torres did, however, tragically lose his life. That's true. But that tragedy did not need to be compounded by yet another. And with us to cover this 
crazy story is an Indiana Deputy State Public Defender, Dwayne's post-conviction attorney, John Chenoweth. So, John, welcome to the show. Thank you. And, John, you're not the only person responsible for Dwayne's freedom, least of which is Dwayne, who had done a lot of pro se litigant work on his own, but will also be joined later on by two more attorneys who fought for Dwayne in federal court. The director of the Indiana University School of Law Federal Habeas Project, Michael Osbrook, and a public defender who was Michael's student at the time, Alex Doland, who Michael had tapped to handle oral arguments for Dwayne and ultimately was successful. So we're looking forward to speaking with them as well. But before we get into any of that, before your friend Angel's tragic demise, Dwayne, you had been leading an honorable life by anybody's definition. And you weren't originally from the Elkhart area, right? I grew up in Indianapolis, went to George Washington High School, and uh, liked to play football, fishing, just stuff like that. Then I came to Elkhart later after I graduated and come up to Elkhart to work, get the jobs. Back then, you can quit a job and go get a job the same day. So you were working in the RV industry? Yeah, RV trailers, shipping and receiving, all that. Forklift, I used to move the sidewalls for RVs, the big RVs. Used to move the walls, the roof, and the floors, all that. Just working and raising my family. Yep, you and your girlfriend, Letha Sims, were raising two kids. And and so in 2008, you're 46 years old, and you're living in an apartment building in Elkhart, and Angel Torres lived in the apartment next door where both of your second-story apartments shared a deck. And the same rickety set of stairs leading up to or down from it. That's right. It's a normal stair. It's like, say, if you're going up to a second floor apartment. But the railing was loose, wooden stairs. And, you know, we was always putting something on it because we were scared for the little kids when they were up there that they were going to fall through the railing. So I had to get some other kind of fencing to put up through there. And the metal poles were broke. Sounds pretty dicey. But, okay, so you were you two guys friends? Oh, yeah. Well, we used to hang out, sit down on the porch, drink beer. Sometime I'll have cookouts. He would come over. Sometime he would cook, come over, just doing neighborly things. Okay. And so on this particular night, the night of September 3rd, 2008, what happened? I went out to walk the dog and came back. It was, it was in the evening. It was late, probably around 10. And for some reason, I went over his house, and I don't know if he was just drunk or what. And he got upset, got mad, and asked me to leave. So I left, and then he went to go get his baseball bat or something. We tussled a little while, and I left and went in the house. For some reason, I just came back out on the porch, and I guess he see me. He comes out on the porch. He had the bat in his hand. He reached and slapped me across the bat with the bat. I said, man, you hit me with that bat again, we're going to have a problem. And he reached to go hit again, and I, when I turned, he tumbled backwards down the stairs. He hit his head a couple times going down the stairs. And when I seen him hit the bottom, I was like, man, damn, are you all right? And he didn't say nothing. So I walked down the stairs to go check on him. And when I checked on him, I was trying to step over the blood, but there was nothing I could do. So I shook him, see if he moved. He didn't move. I came back upstairs. Lisa said, what happened? I said, he tumbled down the stairs. He fell. And then Willie came out. He got on the cell phone, and he called the police. And Willie is Letha's son, a teenager at the time, who also goes by the name of Jamar. So then what happened? Then me and him walked down the stairs, went around his body, and we stood on the street. And I checked on me a couple times, and then I would walk to the edge of the street to see if the police were coming. One police officer came past and kept going. Maybe another half a minute or so later, then one come up the side street. He stopped, and we waved him on. Then he came and pulled over. Then they went to check it on him, asked me what was going on, what had happened, and all this there, and took pictures and all that. 
So when the police arrive at the scene, the paramedics are called and Mr. Torres is taken to the hospital for treatment. Some investigators from the police department arrive at the scene. They take photos. They collect evidence. So he was very severely injured and was taken off life support a couple of days after he was taken to the hospital. Back at the crime scene, the investigators, uh, when they first arrived, had found a baseball bat underneath Mr. Torres's body, which they collected as evidence. And they spoke to the witnesses and they spoke to Dwayne. They found some blood spatter at the scene, which they photographed. Let's talk about that blood spatter. From what I've read about your case, the state's theory eventually became that Dwayne had beaten him with an unknown object after the fall. And there were what were categorized as cast-off patterns on surrounding objects and surfaces from the alleged repeated swings from this alleged unidentified bludgeoning tool. Now, curiously, though, there was no cast-off on your clothing. When any Buddy would know, the most amateur sleuth in the world would know that you would have been covered in blood had you repeatedly struck Angel. But, of course, that was not the case. Nothing like it. They found a little bit of blood on Dwayne's shoe and a little bit of blood on the inside of the shorts that you were wearing. Yeah. And there was no doubt that Dwayne had been at the bottom of the staircase trying to help Mr. Torres. And Mr. Torres was bleeding at that time. So if, if blood ended up on Dwayne, that would not have been surprising. So not only is that blood easily explainable, but so are the spatter patterns. And as it turns out, while Angel Torres' blood was, in fact, pooling on the ground, quite a few people had trampled through the scene. Yeah, the paramedics walked through it. The, all the police were in it. They took the baseball bat and picked it up and leaned it up against the car. And the bat was the only freaking thing they ever found. As we mentioned, it was under his body with no spatter and a thorough search was conducted. There were no other implements on the scene. So anyway, the police brought you in for questioning. The first two detectives that were on the case, they kept me down there, and they went to every place I told them I went, they went to go check. Then they came back, and they said, all right. Then they came back the next day, the clothes, they put it all in bags, and they said, well, we're going to go send this to the lab and test it. I said, no problem. And as we mentioned, there was a droplet of Angel's blood discovered on your shoe, and on the inside leg of your shorts, which was consistent with you having entered the scene, having tried to help your friend, but definitely not consistent with multiple swings of a blunt object and blood flying everywhere. In fact, you were, you were the only one, ironically, that was hit with a blunt object. When they took Dwayne in for questioning, they took photographs of his body and they found injuries where Dwayne had been hit by the baseball bat by Mr. Torres. They found clear evidence that he had been struck at least several times. Everything they found at the scene in terms of the physical evidence was matching up with what Dwayne and Letha and Jamar were saying had happened. Now, the police had also questioned Letha and her son, who were the only two witnesses to what happened. What did they tell the police? Nothing that Dwayne never touched them. That's, that was what was said. They investigated for a while, but i say maybe 30, 40 days later, maybe two months. Them two detectives came back to my house one day and said, Mr. Dunn, far as we concerned, this case is closed because we can't find anything. I said, all right. Right. At this point, Letha and Jamar are saying that you hadn't touched him, that they had heard him fall down the stairs and had come rushing out to see what the commotion was and hadn't witnessed any beating after that. Even the autopsy hadn't ruled that the cause of death was homicide, 
but rather the cause of death was deemed uncertain. So for all of the reasons I just mentioned, signs pointed clearly to an unfortunate accident. But the chief deputy prosecuting attorney, Vicki Becker, wasn't taking that as an answer. I say maybe six months after that, she put up somebody else on the case. He brings me downtown. And we saw the same thing in Andy Royer and Lana Kanan's case, where after their case went cold, a new detective was assigned to close it. And again, just like Andy, they tried to get a confession out of you. He's the one that started pushing the issue. Oh, you hit him. You did this. You did that. Just, you know, you, you kicked him. You did that. I said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. I ain't did nothing. He said, well, what if we got a witness that says that you kicked him? I said, well, your witness is lying. He said, well, today you're going home. He said, but uh, I want you to know it. We're still on this. So I guess at the same time where they were bringing me, I guess they were bringing Lisa them in, and that's who he was really trying to pressure. She said the officer told her that, you know, Dwayne kicked him. You know, Dwayne hit him, don't you? And she said, well, they kept pressing her so tough that she went on and said it. She said what he told her to say. She even said it at the trial. I believe that's how they got the warrant. Now they had enough to get an arrest warrant. But they needed to find some way to support what they knew was a shaky and patently false statement. I mean, Letha eventually went on to recant at trial. So now we see another move that we've seen before in Elkhart, in Andy Royer's case, when the Indiana Police Lab wasn't giving Vicki Becker the fingerprint analysis that she wanted. So she tapped fingerprint analysis, known fingerprint analysis fraud, David Chapman, for a second opinion. In this case, the person who had performed the original autopsy, Dr. Blair Trenka, had ruled the cause of death uncertain, not a homicide. So they fished around for two years to find a second opinion, or rather an opinion they liked, from Dr. Scott Wagner. He said it was a, a homicide, but all he ever seen was the pictures. He never looked at the body or anything. Dr. Wagner agreed that the cause of death was blunt force trauma and that Mr. Torres had died as a result of skull fractures and other injuries. Where he disagreed with Dr. Trenka is that whereas Dr. Trenka said that the manner of death couldn't be determined because he didn't know whether it was a fall or whether Mr. Torres had been injured at the bottom of the staircase, Dr. Wagner was certain that Mr. Torres had been injured at the bottom of the staircase. The staircase at Duane's place was about six, seven feet down to the pavement. And Dr. Wagner didn't believe that the injuries suffered by Mr. Torres could have been caused by a fall down a staircase of that length. He thought the injuries were so severe they must have been caused by a beating, so he determined that the manner of death was homicide. But when I kept trying to tell him and explain to him that when he slipped, he tumbled at least twice. He flipped head over foot at least twice before he hit the ground. I mean, Mr. Torres suffered severe injuries. There was no doubt about that. But there was an explanation there was a scientific medical explanation for why those injuries were so serious, and they were due to the condition of Mr. Torres. He was out of shape. He was an alcoholic. He had a pacemaker. His bones were weak. He bled easily. His liver was susceptible to being injured because it was so swollen from the alcoholism. And a fall down even a short staircase can cause really severe injuries, especially to someone who's susceptible to injuries like Mr. Torres was. And the nature of the injuries were such that they looked like they had been caused by a fall. They weren't consistent with a beating. Dwayne, little did you know, now they had what they needed to get a conviction. Yeah, I remember the morning that they came through the door. I, I'd get ready to go to work. And a knock came on the door. My brother went and got it. 
He said, the police come to the door and they said, is Dwayne done here? He said, bro, they looking for you. I said, open the door, let them in. I ain't did nothing. So he came to the door. He said, you Dwayne. He said, well, I need you to step outside. He said, we got a warrant for your arrest. I said, a warrant? A warrant for what? He said, murder. I said, oh my God. Turn around, put my hands up, cuff me, put me in the car. So you were charged with first degree murder and awaited trial in jail for nine long months. And you were assigned Cliff Williams, the chief public defender for Elkhart County. I don't think much of anything was done for Dwayne in terms of investigation prior to going to trial. And in fact, Cliff Williams, there's a lot he could have done that he did not do. The trial started on a Monday. He came to see me on that Friday. This was one of only two times he came to see me the whole time I was in the jail. And then he was telling me that he's, he's going to prepare over the weekend. And he had the, another attorney with him. She was his assistant. I don't remember her name, but she was there. So we were talking and he was talking about, well, the state's going to have experts. We're going to let them talk. I'm not going to question them too much. I kept looking at him and I'm like, man, and she asked him, well, why don't we have experts? And then he looked at her and told her something to do with the money or something like that. And I looked like, man, hold up, wait a minute. You mean to tell me who's going to testify on my side? He said, well, right now, this is just going to be us. I looked at him, I'm like, oh, my God. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. The Pacers Foundation is a proud supporter of this episode of Wrongful Conviction and of the Last Mile Organization, which provides business and tech training to help incarcerated individuals successfully and permanently re-enter the workforce. The Pacers Foundation is committed to improving the lives of Hoosiers across Indiana, supporting organizations that are dedicated primarily to helping young people and students. For more information on the work of the Pacers Foundation or the Last Mile program, visit PacersFoundation.org or TheLastMile.org. So all you've got is your girlfriend and her son. And we know, and listeners of the show know, that loved ones are usually explained or rationalized away very easily by the state. So it almost sounds like he planned on losing. So that process, the trial, began in January 2011 in front of Judge Terry Shoemaker. The the prosecution presented the questionable second opinion of Dr. Wagner and then a guy named Dean Marks as well. Dean Marks is a blood spatter expert, and he testified that there were numerous areas of blood spatter at the scene and that some of that blood spatter had been caused by cast off, meaning that there was an object that had blood on it that had been swung and that the blood had been cast off of this object and landed on different surfaces, the side of the building, a car. And that indicated that Mr. Torres had been killed with a blunt object and that the blood spatter at the scene was caused by the swinging of this object. And the state conceded at trial that the baseball bat was not the weapon that had been used because there was no blood on the baseball bat. And as we now know, blood spatter analysis has been totally debunked as what it is, which is junk science. It's not science at all. In fact, we did a deep dive into this kind of quote-unquote evidence and testimony in our podcast, Wrongful Conviction Junk Science, which of course was hosted by the great Josh Dubin. So we'll have a link in the bio in which you'll find out that most of these quote-unquote analysts are other cops who have taken just a 40-hour course. Yes, you heard that right, a 40-hour course about how to testify convincingly 
about the fluid dynamics of blood, a subject that they don't know shit about. Nothing. So it's like almost like an acting course more than anything else. It would be laughable if it wasn't so sinister. But then you have to keep in mind, we talked about this previously, but at the scene, there are pools of blood near Mr. Torres's body and multiple people are stepping in these pools and they're causing blood to splash. They're getting blood on their shoes, which is then being cast off as they walk. Numerous people, paramedics, police officers, maybe even Dwayne when he was trying to help Mr. Torres at the bottom of the staircase. And as this progresses and as the investigation continues immediately after, it begins to rain. Mm -hmm. So now you've got rain and the raindrops are coming down and any one of these things could have caused the spatter. And Marx did not consider any of that in his testimony. And unfortunately, most people serving on a jury are going to be unaware that this so-called expert was merely jumping to conclusions and not ruling out all of these other possibilities. Instead, this expert was only an expert in testifying or testifying let's call it what it is, to whatever the state's theory was. And it'll become clear that Wagner was no different. Yet, this really was all they had against the word of what unfortunately can be considered two interested parties. So what did Letha and Willie say on the stand? Willie testified that he had seen Mr. Torres go after Dwayne with the baseball bat. Yeah. And that Dwayne was defending himself. And that during this struggle, Mr. Torres lost his balance and fell backwards down the steps. And as he was falling, his back hit the banister of the steps. Flipped over, yeah. And he sort of flipped over and landed on the pavement at the bottom of the staircase. Letha testified that she heard the commotion she comes out of the apartment and she's standing on the balcony and she sees Mr. Torres at the bottom of the staircase and she sees Dwayne trying to help Mr. Torres and trying to help him up to his feet. And neither one of them ever testified that they saw Dwayne striking Mr. Torres while he was laying on the pavement. They didn't see anything other than Dwayne trying to help Mr. Torres after he fell down the steps. And not only did they corroborate Dwayne's version of events, but also Letha testified that the detective had bullied her into saying Dwayne was guilty just in order to get the arrest warrant. And Cliff Williams did, in fact, point that out. Yeah, so he said, now you said the detective that forced you and made you say that, is he here? And she said, yeah. He said, and she pointed him out. But the jury, I guess they, they just overlooked that. So it appears Mr. Williams' efforts were just not enough. You have two lay people who are not scientists testifying about what they saw, and the state has two experts with all sorts of degrees and training going to testify that this was a homicide. You can't take the risk of the jury believing the experts over the lay people. You have to prepare the case such that you have your own experts. Then you can combine the eyewitness testimony with the expert testimony and have a full defense. And the only party that had expert testimony was the state. And unfortunately, he was facing Vicki Becker, who was willing to go even farther than that. There was a line that the prosecutor used in their closing argument to the jury in which they were referring to Letha and Jamar and their testimonies. And the prosecutor said to the jury, you don't find swans in a sewer. Wow. Not only had one of your friends died, but now... You, your girlfriend, life partner, and young Willie, all black people, 
were being called by this white prosecutor human waste. Certainly not swans, in her telling, white as the driven snow. And she said this just as the jury was sent out to deliberate. So what was it like when they came back in? Well, at first I kind of looked at them. And then I kind of had that feeling like, man, they're getting ready to come back with a guilty verdict. They sentenced me to 58 years. First time ever been in prison. Almost 50 years old. Now I'm here. I'm on my way to prison. And I couldn't wonder what my mother was thinking and my kids were thinking. I mean, I mean, and they talked about me bad on TV, the news. I mean, it's like I was a murderer. Then the newspapers talking like, oh, I didn't rob him and beat him and did all this. I ain't never even touched a man. And now I'm going to prison. But you didn't take this lying down, from what I understand. Just like on the outside, you went to work. You're a worker. That's what you've always done. And now you had your life at stake. So I had to learn how to do the law work, learn how to look up law, how to look up cases, because I couldn't let that go. I kept thinking in my mind, man, I can't let them get away with this. You know, this, this can't happen like this. So I just went to work. I had an attorney and Mr. Walker, she did the direct appeal. But she already told me that if you don't have something blunt that just turns around, that's going to, you know, smack them in the face, that they're going to shoot that down. And they, they did And it's worth noting that the hearing was held in front of the same judge, Terry Shoemaker. So now the appeal moved on from direct appeal to state post-conviction. And Dwayne, you were working on your own at that point, filing your own motions before John got involved. So my best issue was their expert witness. Why didn't I have an expert witness? And then the jury. To me, it wasn't a fair jury. Now, I'm a black man. In Elkhart, why aren't there any black jurors? There was 49 prospective jurors, and there was only one black juror. When they got to the black juror, Shoemaker struck him down, the judge himself, because he said he knew him when he was a prosecutor. So now I'm looking up there, man. I'm like, man, this can't be right. It can't be fair. And while that is a very important issue, one at the crux of so much of the injustice in our system, it can be very difficult to get traction in court rather than the ineffectiveness of your trial counsel, which John latched onto when the case fell on his desk. And John finally did what your trial attorney simply did not, which was to look for a forensic pathologist who was not part of the Elkhart machine to review the case. And I found someone, a forensic pathologist by the name of Dr. Thomas Sozio. He was unequivocal that all of the injuries suffered by Mr. Torres had been caused by a fall down the steps. He knew from the witness testimony that there had been an altercation. He didn't know if Mr. Torres had lost his balance and fallen down the steps. He didn't know if Mr. Torres had been pushed down the steps. But he knew that the injuries that Mr. Torres suffered had been caused by the fall, not by a beating. And he knew that for several reasons. Number one, all of Mr. Torres's injuries occurred in a straight line across his body. So the skull fractures, the broken shoulder, the broken ribs, the lacerated liver, all occurred in a straight line down his body. And to Dr. Sozio, that indicated that all of those injuries had occurred when that side of Mr. Torres's body hit the pavement. If Mr. Torres had been beaten with a blunt object, Dr. Sozio would have expected to see injuries on various parts of his body, not in a line, but more random, you know, as if someone had hit him in his head there, hit him in his ribs there. When someone is beaten with an object, you don't see all of the injuries in a straight line across the body. They're more varied across the body. 
In addition to that, though, there were even more reasons which we mentioned earlier that the state's expert, Dr. Wagner, hadn't considered or just, you know, put blinders on and ignored. The level of alcohol that was in Mr. Torres' system, the alcoholism long-term had made Mr. Torres susceptible to severe injuries. It had caused osteoporosis, which made uh, his bones more susceptible to breaking. It had caused his liver to be enlarged and more susceptible to damage. There was only one laceration on the skull, which is consistent with the fall. If Mr. Torres had been beat with a bat, Dr. Sozio would have expected to see more lacerations on the skull. And so for all of those reasons, Dr. Sozio was adamant that his death and his injuries had been caused by a fall, not by a beating. So you guys were able to get an evidentiary hearing. You got an expert whose summation destroyed the state's case. And by now, of course, it's all the way up to 2017, and blood spatter analysis had been fully debunked and exposed as a junk science. And Judge Shoemaker had retired, so he was out of the way. The new judge who had been elected to take Judge Shoemaker's place had been a public defender in prior practice. And so I was cautiously optimistic that the new judge was going to give us a fair shake. But when we arrived at the hearing date, the new judge was away at the new judge training session. And so much to my surprise, the hearing starts, court is called to order, and Judge Shoemaker walks out <laughs> from the chambers and sits down on the bench. And that was that was an unpleasant surprise as far as I was concerned. Yeah, unpleasant to say the least. I mean, he ruled that you failed to establish that this new evidence would have changed the outcome at trial. And the Indiana Court of Appeals upheld the decision, even though this testimony refuted the state's case. During the trial, there was no time that they heard anything like that. They were always kept hearing beating, 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 beating. And the thing that we needed, all we needed was one juror. So who's to say what one juror would have said? Right. So the question is not, does this new evidence prove that the jury would have acquitted Duane? The question is whether there's a reasonable probability that this evidence would have made a difference to at least one juror. So Judge Shoemaker and the Indiana Court of Appeals were applying a much more stringent standard than what the law calls for. Not only that, but Shoemaker also stuck his head right in the sand when Cliff Williams took the stand to admit his ineffectiveness. Cliff Williams was still with us at the time that we presented our case to Judge Shoemaker, and he testified that he never deposed the state's experts, he never tried to consult with an expert of his own, and he didn't have any reasons for that. It wasn't a matter of strategy, it was just something that he had overlooked. And he admitted it. He admitted that he had made a mistake, and that's something that Judge Shoemaker and the Indiana courts paid insufficient attention to, and it's right. something that the federal courts really relied on. So, so now, you, now you had to file your federal habeas appeal in 2018, and you finally didn't have to deal with Shoemaker anymore. I said, well, maybe we can get a break now. Now that we're not in front of him, it's out of his court, and it's out of Elkhart, period. And what you have to remember is that Dwayne was on his own. I don't practice in federal courts. So Dwayne was not represented by an attorney. He was representing himself, and his federal habeas petition was dismissed as untimely. Right. Dwayne, by himself, got it back on track, got his petition back in front of district court judge. Then, working by himself, he convinces the judge that he's entitled to a new trial and that the Indiana courts have got it wrong. He's not a lawyer. 
He's in prison. He's having to do all this by mail, and he made it happen for himself. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This brings us up to December of 2020, and you're going up in front of Judge Philip Simon. Judge Simon reviews the case, everything you brought up in your appeal, and all the ways the trial went wrong, which are considerable, as we've already seen. And then on top of that, he agrees that Judge Shoemaker applied the wrong legal standard when he denied your petition for a new trial. If you apply the right standard, it's pretty clear that Dr. Sozio's testimony, there's a reasonable probability it would have made a difference for the jury. And it certainly shows that there was ineffective assistance of counsel in Dwayne's case. So at this point, things were finally starting to look up. Well, yeah, man, I started to see daylight again. <laughs> I mean, I, I was like, I might, I might have a chance, but then, you know, they got to go through the appeal process because they get the same, they, their side gets the same appeals that we do. So now I'm going my way to the Seventh Circuit. And this is where you got three judges. So... I didn't know really what to expect there. So, you know, I wasn't no federal lawyer. That's when Michael took over. And that would be Michael Hosbrook, 
director of Indiana University Morrow School of Law's federal habeas program. And as it happens, he's right here with us today. Michael, it's about time. <laughs> welcome. I'm so glad to welcome you to a wrongful conviction. Thanks, Jason. We also have Alex Doland, who at the time was one of your law students, I understand, and then went on to become a public defender. Alex, welcome. Thanks, Jason. So let's pick up the story here with you guys. It's 2020, and Dwayne is getting ready to file his appeal, the federal habeas appeal. How did you two get involved? It was sort of an inside job. I get an RSS feed of everything that's filed in the southern and northern districts of Indiana, and I look at them every day. That's that's 1,300 filings, but I know which are the habeas cases. And I saw Judge Simon's order granting Dwayne relief and said to myself, well, the state's going to appeal that. And I arranged for the Seventh Circuit to appoint us in the case. Michael called me not long after the Seventh Circuit had appointed us, and he told me, hey, I have this case, and I want you to argue for it. And as we went through it, and I was reading everything about Dwayne's case, I remember thinking what an injustice it was and and how frustrated I was at how At that point, he was basically losing every step of the way in the state courts due to some misapplication of the law, misunderstanding of the facts. From the start, Cliff Williams, Dwayne's trial lawyer, misunderstood the case as being about the bat. As As we put in our brief, this case was never about the bat. Then one of the lines that sticks with me from this case is Dr. Sozio on cross saying, to me, it's a fall all day. And if I could just talk about Dean Marks for a second and sort of this category of what they call blood splatter science, Dean Marks himself had actually been involved in another wrongful conviction case of a man named David Cam from Southern Indiana who was accused of murdering his wife and his children. Mr. Cam had a significant defense, but one of the reasons why he was convicted was this testimony of a blood splatter expert And Dean Marks was on that panel of experts who made that determination. So not only is this guy a junk scientist, but he's actually been involved in a different case that that was also a wrongful conviction. So Judge Simon absolutely dismantled, in his opinion, the state's case against Duane. And then Alex in the Seventh Circuit, I, I mean, I cannot tell you how terrific his preparation and presentation of this was. He laid out all the pieces of the state's dismantled case and showed the Seventh Circuit that they could not be put back together again. But Judge Kirsch, who dissented in, in the Seventh Circuit opinion, was convinced that all the injuries to Angel Torres were the result of a severe beating. And he misunderstood the case. The state never argued that the rib fractures and the the damage to Torres's liver, for example, were the result of a beating. The state's case was only that he'd been hit over the head. So you have Cliff Williams, he doesn't understand that it's not about the bat. You have the Indiana Court of Appeals misunderstanding what undetermined means. And then you have Judge Kirsch misunderstanding that this was a beating. There was one moment where I got to very forcefully say no, no to him misstating a fact. And, you know, to me, from from the public defender mindset, the best thing that I can ever do for a client is push back when somebody in authority 
is incorrect or attempting to you know, violate my client's rights. So after Alex gets up in front of this three-judge panel arguing all the points that we've been talking about, Dwayne, you tell us what ultimately happens. We win. Right. They actually upheld Judge Simon's ruling. That's right. That uh, there should have been another expert witness on our side. The jury should have heard, you know, something different. So you've had your victory in the Seventh Circuit, but now they have an opportunity to take this to the U.S. Supreme Court or potentially retry Dwayne if they chose to. And again, this is Vicki Becker, and she'd been willing to do a lot. And so they had 60 days to decide or you'd be released, which would have been just before Election Day 2022 when Becker was running unopposed, which, by the way, someone needs to do something about that next time around somebody if you're out there and you're a listener and you're a lawyer and you're thinking about running (laughs) give us a call at wrongful conviction (laughs) we got you but that's a topic for another time the point is here she had nothing to lose or gain by releasing him or choosing to retry you i think it was friday afternoon before we were going to go up the following monday night and i saw Vicki Becker had filed notice they weren't going to re-prosecute him. So there's two officers come up to my door. I'm sitting in a cell. they talking about pack up. I said, pack up for what? You got to leave. You're going. I said, go on where? And they wouldn't say nothing. So I said, well, man, don't you touch nothing in this cell. So I go down, talk to the sergeant. I said, where am I going? He said, you're going home. I said, what? I said, for real? He said, yeah, you've been set free. So you've only been out since... Just recently, November 2022, how are things going for you? I understand it's been a little rough finding work. Well, because that's on my record, seeing a lot of jobs out here now is that the decent ones, you got to get background checks. And when they run the background check, the first thing they go, they see this 60-year-old man that's been out of work for so long. And then it comes up, he was convicted of murder. So that doesn't look good on a background check. Well, maybe there's someone out there listening who might have a job for you. What kind of gig are you looking for? Well, anything in the factory, something, you know, something positive, something to keep me busy right now, just so I can get back on my feet. If they're out there in the South Bend area, sure, I'll take the help. I'm not too proud to take any help. Great. Well, yeah, if there's anyone out there listening who could put Dwayne onto a job lead, we'd really appreciate it, of course. And, you know, one of our listeners, one of our avid listeners, and one of our great sponsors is Stephen Simon of the Indiana Pacers organization. He's one of the owners of the team. And Stephen, if you're listening, this is a great guy here, you know, and maybe you have something for him. So I'm talking directly to you. And yeah, we appreciate everything you do for us. And we'll have links to get in touch with Dwayne in our bio. So thanks so much in advance. And now we come to the part of the show that I love the most. And of course, it's called Closing Arguments. And this is where I turn off my mic, kick back in my chair, close my eyes and just listen to whatever else you all have to say. Let's kick it off with Michael Osbrook and Alex Dolan and and then of course John Chenoweth and and then to you Dwayne. So Michael, why don't you go first? I think what I want to say in, in, in closing is again this should have ended in Judge Shoemaker's court and the delay in getting Dwayne released is terrible and obviously we're incredibly happy it it, it worked out in the end, but in a way it didn't. To me, there are injustices happening in trial courtrooms every day. As somebody who's been at this trial level and has seen what goes on, there might be 
dozens of people in in courtrooms, hundreds of people, thousands of people across the country who are going through this process and are being wrongfully prosecuted, ultimately convicted for a crime they didn't commit. It's really important to be vigilant about stuff like that. Anytime that somebody's at home and they're watching the news and they see somebody accused of a terrible crime, my best piece of advice is to never jump to conclusions. So I would just encourage people to always have an open mind when somebody is charged with a crime. Charges are not convictions, and you never know if they have the right person or not. So it's extremely important to be skeptical. I just want to emphasize that Dwayne deserves all the credit in the world for going into federal court by himself and winning himself a new trial. I have all the admiration and respect for what he did. You know, I have to say that when Judge Simon made his decision and I heard about it, I was thrilled for him. But at the same time, it was sad to me that it had taken so long to get to that point. Justice delayed is justice denied. And it's a continuing injustice that Dwayne is having trouble finding work because of a conviction for a crime that he's been exonerated of and that never existed in the first place. First of all, I'd just like to say thank you, man. Just thank you for this time. Thank you for a chance for y'all to give me a chance to say a little bit about what happened. But a lot still needs to be done, man, because there's a lot of guys that are still in prison that didn't commit a crime, that are just as innocent as I was. And our justice system, man, is it works for those that are capable and able to get the right people to work with them. Other than that, man, our, our system is, 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 is not right, man. It's not right because they're putting people in prison. Some guys don't even get a fair shake, just like what happened in my trial. How many other people are in prison and locked up because they didn't have an expert witness on their side? And this is the reason why I say something needs to be done. But I thank you for my time and I thank you. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. Special thanks to our wonderful production team, Connor Hall, Annie Chelsea, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow on TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet 
or the algorithm, choose them, and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. 